Hello, this is James, and welcome back to The Word is Very Near You, my podcast about God's closeness in our everyday lives. Thanks so much for being with me today. I'm in the midst of a series called Think and Do, which is based on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As a bachelor, I love to stay up late. I would hang out with my friends, we'd go see a movie, maybe play some basketball, hang out. I love to stay up late, and therefore, it was usually very hard the next morning to wake up. I would set my alarm as late as possible, give myself the bare minimum amount of time needed to hop in the shower, eat breakfast, and roll on to work. I I did not enjoy the mornings. I was not a morning person. But things changed drastically for me once I got married and had kids I started sharing a household with more people. I quickly found that the only time that was truly mine, the only time I could really enjoy working out or reading or quiet time, was early in the morning. And so over time, my personality shifted to becoming more of a morning person. And waking up no longer seemed like such a burden because I was going to bed earlier. But waking up was now joyful. It's something I looked forward to each morning and still do. In today's passage, Paul describes the spiritual life as a kind of waking up. That, as Christians, we begin to wake up and pay attention to the new life in Christ. That we no longer just live on autopilot like we used to before we knew Christ. But we begin to wake up and realize what's happening around us. And that results in a new set of behaviors, a new way of living, because we're starting to pay attention to wake up. Today I'm reading from a couple of sections from Ephesians 4 and 5 where Paul contrasts the old life with the new life. If you were with me last time, we looked at how Paul instructed them to take off the clothes of the old life that no longer fit them and to put on the new clothes of the new life that were now appropriate for them. And so in this section, Paul gets very practical. He gets very specific about which behaviors they are to stop and which ones they should start. One of the dangers of a section like this is that some people think this is what the Christian life is solely about. Don't do that. Instead, do this. And Christianity becomes simply behavior modification. But if you've been tracking with me through this series, you know that's just simply not true. Because for the first half of the letter, Paul has been instructing them and reminding them of who they are in Christ and all the incredible work God has done for them and how God's power, God's spirit is at work in them. God is the one who is transforming them and changing them. Salvation is not an act of sheer willpower. We don't save ourselves through our commitment to morality and good deeds. No, salvation is God's work. It is God's initiative. It is God's power that is at work in us to change us and make us into new people. The first section I'm reading today begins in Ephesians 4.25, and it goes like this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul covers a lot of ground in these nine verses. The topics he addresses include things like lying, anger, stealing, loose talk, bitterness, and on the positive side, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and love. In most of these examples, the plain meaning is clear and requires little comment. There is a pattern to them, as we've mentioned earlier, that Paul follows, picking up on his earlier discussion in verses 17 through 24 about taking off the clothes of the old life and putting on the clothes of the new life. So, for example, in verse 25, it's not just put off falsehood, but it's speak truthfully. So take off the clothes of falsehood and put on the clothes of truth. Or in verse 28, it's not just don't steal, but it's work and do something useful with your hands to benefit those in need. And I think there's some good wisdom here for us in that often it's very difficult to simply stop a bad habit or bad behavior. We often need to replace that bad habit with something new, a new behavior, a better behavior. And that's what Paul is advising them here to do. We're in the perfect season on the Christian calendar to do just that. Lent started a few days ago, and historically for Christians, Lent is a time of self-examination, of reflection, a chance to reflect on some behaviors of the old life that may be bogging us down, and a chance to begin to put some of those to rest and replace them with new behaviors. And this is all done through grace. It's not a sheer act of self-denial or willpower, but rather, as the letter of Ephesians is structured, it's a chance to depend more and more on God's grace and mercy. So it's not just stopping that bad habit like gossiping, but it's asking God to help us in those moments we feel tempted to gossip and maybe replacing that behavior with something like praying for the person that we were about to gossip about. That's what Lent is all about, self-reflection, examination, beginning to change harmful behaviors in our lives. And I love how Paul wraps up this section by accentuating the big positive themes of God's love and kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example, therefore, or be imitators of God is another way that verse is rendered. And again, I can't say it enough times, but this is never meant to be something we do all by ourselves. It's not up to us to save ourselves. We follow God's example and we imitate him through the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us. It's an inside-out job and not an outside-in job. Transformation occurs through God's initiative, God's work in us.
The final observation I'll make about this section is that you get this sense from these verses that the Ephesians really shared a deep common life together. They really knew one another. Remember, they were this tiny outpost of Jesus' people in this large, urban, sophisticated city where they were strange. They must have been very odd. The people around them were either indifferent or maybe outright hostile to them because they were just so strange compared to the prevailing culture. And you get the sense that that identity really forged the Ephesians' bonds to live a close, common, shared life together. And that that community, it wasn't always kumbaya and rainbow and sunshine, but it was messy a lot of the time. And community is just like that. When you share life together at a deep level and you get beyond the facade of pseudo-community and pseudo-friendship and pseudo-relationship and move into real relationship and really talk about your shared life, your differences as well as your similarities, it begins to unearth a lot of feelings and emotions and things aren't always great and it takes work to really have true relationship and true community. And that's the sense I get from these verses is that they were really working things out and it wasn't always easy, but it was worth it in the end. The next passage I'd like to read from this section begins in chapter 5, verse 8, and it goes like this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So we hear a lot of similar themes to the first passage here, don't we? The contrast between the old life of darkness is the metaphor Paul uses here. Contrast with the light of the new life. And again, this sort of don't do this, instead do that. Don't live as unwise, but be wise. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be filled with alcoholic spirits, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So as with the first section, the plain meaning of these verses is rather clear and requires little comment. But I do want to draw your attention to a couple of things. In verse 14, there's this scrap or fragment of what scholars believe may be an early Christian hymn or perhaps part of a baptismal liturgy where Paul says, this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're not sure where that quote comes from. It's not an Old Testament quote, but Paul assumes that his readers would have been familiar with it, and therefore it's conjectured that it was 
part of an early Christian ritual, again, perhaps baptism, and that would make sense, wouldn't it? Because historically, Christians have viewed baptism as the dividing line between the old life and the new life. It was the symbol of making a change and taking a step towards life with God. And so this could be a way that Paul is saying to them, hey, Ephesians, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. And that's a good word for us too, isn't it? To remember our baptism. Remember the time when we made that decision to move away from the old life and to commit ourselves to a life with God, a new life through baptism. Again, through being immersed into him and having his life in us, not a an attempt to be religious or to save ourselves through our own efforts, but rather a life with God, a life of intimacy with him, his presence, his spirit inside of us, empowering us and impelling us to live a new life. Remember your baptism. And as we do that, there's a kind of waking up that occurs, isn't it? Someone somewhere has once said, the spiritual life is all about waking up and then waking up some more. The spiritual life is about coming to attention and getting off of autopilot and just doing what comes naturally. But the spiritual life is about beginning to wake up to the reality of what's happening in us and around us, of who God is and what he's about. We begin to wake up from the slumber, the spiritual slumber we've been in, of sin and darkness and just doing our own thing and following our own desires. The spiritual life is about waking up. Simone Weil was a French philosopher. Some have called her a mystic who lived in the 20th century. And she has this beautiful discussion about how the spiritual life is all about coming to attention. Not as in, yes sir, like a military officer, but coming to attention as in paying attention and opening yourself up and being aware of what's happening around you about waking up. And paying attention is really the theme of these final verses where Paul is instructing his readers to be very careful and intentional in how they live, to not be unwise, but to be wise, to make the most of every opportunity, to not be foolish, but to understand what God's will is, to not check out by being drunk, but rather to pay attention to the movements of God's Spirit in them. So these are all admonitions about paying attention, aren't they? About paying attention to who God is and what He is up to in their lives. And there's this beautiful phrase in verse 18 where Paul says, Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And in the original language, that's translated, Be being filled with the Spirit. It's a continuous participle which denotes ongoing, continuous action. Salvation is not this one-time thing that happens and then it's over and done with. What Paul is saying is we live in the continuous reality of the power and presence of God's Spirit. You might translate this verse, be waterlogged with the Spirit. Be waterlogged. Be so saturated with God's presence and God's Spirit that you're waterlogged with His presence. In other words, wake up, pay attention. This has been The Word is Very Near You. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another devotion.